Hello, everyone. This is Chet Gray with Christian Hunters of America podcast. We have another great episode for you today. We're going to be speaking with Brian Fisher. He is a local houndsman. Uh, his dogs are exceptional on dry ground. He targets a lot of the lions here in Arizona during the dry season or when there's no snow melting. Uh, a lot of guys know if you've ever been out mountain lion hunting, there's two different types. You got the dry ground and you have when it's snowing and you can look for those tracks. Brian is excellent and his dogs are excellent during the dry ground season. Those dogs work their butts off. Um, it's a little bit harder from what we've gathered. We're going to hear more in-depth conversations, hear a lot of hunting stories from Brian. Uh, there's nothing like a lion adventure when you saddle up on some pack mules and get on your horses and start following those dogs up through rugged terrain and all the mountains and watching working dogs uh, do what they're bred to do and what they're born to do and go after the lions. It's, uh, it's important from uh, conservation and as well as uh, predator management that we keep a, a, a lower population on those lions and a controlled population. Game and Fish does an excellent job at limiting uh, the seasons as well as uh, having the harvest reports so that they know when and where they are being taken. So we are going to hear a lot of great stories, a lot of great information, and we're going to hear from Brian Fisher on Dry Ground Lion. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. This is Chet Gray, and I have Mike Ornoski in studio, and we are going to be speaking with Brian Fisher on the telephone. How are you, Mike? I am doing so good today. I'm so excited to speak with Brian. And, uh, man, growing up and born and raised in Arizona and, and knowing that Lions is, is one of those unique opportunities and to have a, a professional, uh, a guy that truly loves lion hunting, loves his dogs, and in my opinion, you know, from afar and in a little bit of relationship that we've built over the last few years of it's exciting to have this podcast, especially to hear through the eyes of Brian, who lives, eats, breathes lions. And the biggest thing that I always in all my conversations with him and what I've seen is the love of the dogs. I think that's one of the perspectives that a lot of people don't realize is the true love that that a individual such as Brian has for his dog. So I'm doing fantastic. Hello, everybody. Thank you uh, for following along on our podcast, and today's going to be a fantastic podcast. And welcome, Brian. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we know you've had an exciting season that we will definitely get uh, talking about in no time. Uh, you need a recovery period, as well as the dogs and the mules, even when they're not successful. However, you guys have been very successful. Everybody needs a well-rested mental and physical break to to kind of shake the cobwebs out and uh to relax and recover a little bit how are you buddy i'm good i'm good guys uh i appreciate you having me too i i'm, I'm excited to talk to you guys and and share the share any of my experience and, and some of them uh yeah we definitely had a, a jam up year so far um dogs are happily lounging around today and, and horses and mules are grazing when taking a break and they love what they do, but they're definitely glad to have a few days off. We've been we've been going straight. I think this last stretch was uh, 14. We hunted 14 out of 16 days, so everybody's happy to have a little R and R here. So, <laughs> but I I, I yep. appreciate you guys having us. Or we're, 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 uh, I'm glad to be talking. How did you get involved? Um, I'm sure you've been a hunter for a long time, as most all of us have. But what made you start getting into working dogs and having the dogs? Um, 
become so specialized in dry ground mountain lion hunt? You know, uh, I originally got started uh, about oh, 20, 20, 22 years, something like that. Uh, my dad and I actually built a house. My dad's a general contractor. We built a house for kind of a local friend of ours um, that that has dogs and mules and, and uh, kind of a kind of a weekend hunter, really. But um, I didn't know any different at the time. Um, so I'd actually asked him if I could, you know, what it would take to, to go lion hunting. I didn't know anything, had no idea what it was going to entail at that time. Of course, I definitely didn't have an idea it was going to take over my life, but, uh, it, uh, he, he said, Hey, you know, yeah, I mean, you, you can go hunt with me, you know, show up Saturday morning at six o'clock. You know? Well, needless to say, I was there at five o'clock waiting for him to wake up. And, and, uh, we, uh, I started hunting with him originally. And I pretty much every, literally every chance he gave me. I mean, if he, I'm going next weekend, I was there next weekend. And man, what a, what a roller coaster it was. I, I think I was 19 or 20 years old at the time. And uh, man, I thought like everybody, I, you know, first day I go out, I was going to see a mountain lion. You know, that didn't happen. <laughs> yep. We we only hunted dry ground with him, you know, and we were hunting a big piece of private ground here in central Arizona and uh, a lot of lions on the, in that country. But uh, we, I just kept hunting and hunting, and pretty soon two years had gone by. I still hadn't seen a lion. And I think somewhere around the two or two and a half year mark, I, I had already been brainstorming in my mind, you know, learning everything I could from him. Uh, that was all I knew at that time was what he was showing me or not showing me. And uh, I think uh, somewhere around the two, two and a half year mark, I would pretty much already decided this needed to be something I, I needed to, to dive into and figure out and, and be better at and become, you know, a, a, a lion hunter. Even though I hadn't seen a lion, I hadn't even caught one or seen one. Uh, I had grown up, though, with dogs, you know, working dogs, like spaniel, bird dogs, and German short hairs and stuff growing up. So the dogs was, was right up my alley, but I was totally foreign to the mule. Uh, I had ridden the horse, I don't know, 10 times my whole life at that point, and it was a pony rider around the arena with friends, you know, on certain ranches and stuff. But, uh, once I, once I decided that I needed to get mules, by God, it would help me hunting, deer hunting, <laughs> sheep hunting. I just decided mules were the way to go after hunting with him for a while. But uh, I had five years hunting with him before I, before I caught a lion. And it was a long five years, you know, waiting to see my first lion. That's and, a really uh, long time. It, <laughs> it was crazy. It really was. Uh, obviously my anticipation every time was, you know, it was going to happen. It was going to happen. You know, I mean, it was a long time, and I've learned a ton since then. That was obviously that was all with his dog. I didn't have any dogs at that time because I quite got in. I think somewhere around year four, uh, he had given me a couple puppies because I pretty much, told, you know, I wanted to get, I wanted to start start doing it. And so he had given me a couple pups out of his next litter. So I pretty much had just started with with a couple of young dogs, uh, puppies, and I just kind of just took them out on my own and was just doing my thing train a couple puppies like I normally would and then trying to read and research everything I could about lions and, and uh by the time we had caught those lions uh, that uh, the, at the five-year mark by the time I caught my first lion we actually caught four lions that day it was a female and some some sub-adults that were that were killing cattle on on one of the ranch they killed a cow and uh we ended up hunting them but uh yeah after that uh I pretty much was done hunting with, not I shouldn't say done hunting with him but uh, we, we, I'm still friends with that guy, and he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't hunt near as much as I do. So I, to this day, have never really seen another lion with him. I just dove head first into it, and it was all over for me. I'm, I, I, I had two puppies. I think a year later, I got another, 
another young dog, like a year and a half old dog that a bunch of lion hunters have had. Nobody wanted her. So I took, and I just went to hunting. I just, it was. And the rest is history. (laughs) It kind of is. Uh, it was a crazy experience after that. Really. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of pretty independent and headstrong, but I, I spent two years on my own, literally hunting every waking minute, trying to find a lion. If I saw a track, I went and hunted it. If somebody spotted a lion three days ago, I went and hunted it. You know, uh, it took me two years. I hunted two years completely solo by myself before I, before I was able to luck into my first lion and caught caught one in the dirt. Just got lucky, right place, right time. Uh, found a fresh scratch that a lion had made. Turned out and caught him 500 yards later after after the, after we found that scratch. So incredible. <laughs> that, that was my first. That was my first lion. It took two years to make it happen. I had just, I literally. Three dogs, a couple little puppies, and, and one other dog. Yeah, yeah, it was a it was a long road to get there for sure. A lot of people so. underestimate, you know, puppies. Um, we know several people that uh, go after bears and and target lions and bears with their dogs with all their <laughs> different hounds. And yep. you you got to get them inoculated when in, when they're young. Uh, you know, they are still puppies, and everybody that's a dog lover like like any of us. You know, you treat, most of us treat puppies differently than when you got an adult two-year-old dog. But if those dogs aren't out there, correct me if I'm wrong, if they're not out there at that six-month mark, usually, you know, you got to get them inoculated and and let them look at the other dogs and learn from the the other pack, the rest of the pack, so that they start, you know, developing all those skills, correct? Absolutely, yeah. It's, uh, puppies are interesting, Uh there's a lot you can do, um, and a lot of guys don't don't really do it, or don't don't I don't think spend the time to actually learn uh, enough about the dogs in itself. There's so many variables, in it, especially in this dry ground line hunting. Mm-hmm. But any working dog, you know, I mean, yeah, there's there's so much you can do with a puppy at young, at a very very young age to get them to to help them a lot uh, later in life and and help them really tune into what you're what you're doing. Um, I was very fortunate. Uh, I had a guy that I've known a little bit uh, that that really took me under his wing in terms of dog training. Uh, he was a he was a full time lion hunter. He was actually a dog trainer. He didn't he didn't guide hunters. He just trained dogs to catch lions and bobcats. And and uh, he was one of the best. His name's Dave Carlson. He's retired now. But, um, Dave Carlson was absolutely one one of the best lion hunters I think this country's ever seen. And it was very very to have Dave kind of take me in under his wing. I mean, I would call Dave twice, a, two, two to three times a week. You know, hey, what did I do wrong? Trail lions didn't catch it today. What happened? Or this dog's not doing this. Uh, Dave, Dave, Dave was a great teacher, mostly because he didn't, uh, he didn't show you how to do it. He taught how to learn to do it. You know, and and it helped with the dog immensely. I, I you know, ninety percent of my dog training knowledge and and uh, philosophies to to stuff that taught me or or showed me, uh, you know, a different way and and puppies especially um i start my puppy very early i mean by by 10 or 12 weeks i got i got pups you know that pretty much know their name they know they know to come when called and uh they're start, starting to figure out how to use their noses really really well and uh, i've seen a lot of dogs i've had in fact i've got a outside dogs here right now that i'm training for some guys and uh, you know one of them's seven eight months old and i think the other one's two years old and man, what a what a difference uh, seeing dogs that haven't <laughs> haven't had that early start. You know, it definitely. I can imagine. Sure. Yeah, yeah, and they do. They like you said. They they learn a lot <laughs> from the older dogs. It's amazing what a, uh, a a young dog or even an older dog learns just being with dogs and and hunting with dogs that that are experienced and and know the drill. You know, know what's going on. 
it's pretty impressive. It's a neat sight to see how them dogs work together and learn from each other. For and the the a lot of people have a misconception that there's you know specific breeds and you know different purebreds that target these that have been you know bred for that over the years. But every houndsman yeah. that Mike and I know. The best success that they have usually is with mixed breeds just because you have some that are a little longer legged or the bigger bodied or you have some that are shorter and uh, closer to the ground and can, you know, keep up a little bit longer. They're not, you know, no dog's going to win against a, a fight with a lion, but some of them are more tenacious, you know, like a plot hound and some of those big red bones. And then you got some of the, the walkers that can keep going and going and going. It's like having the mix of everything um, benefits. Is, is that something you've seen as well? Yeah. You know what? It's so funny. Um, Dave told me years ago and it was kind of one of the best analogies I've heard. I'm not a diehard football fan, but I, I played a lot of sports in those sports, but Dave told me very well years ago, he said, you can't win a football game with all quarterbacks, you know, uh, it takes a team, you know, and this, this line hunting is the same. I mean, I've, I've caught a lot of lines with just one dog, um, and, and I've uh, a whole lot of lines with two and three dogs. The reality is, yeah, you got a, uh, a, a dog that can, doesn't matter if it's purebred, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what it's crossed with. It, it's just got to have the heart and body and the drive to, and, uh, I actually quite unorthodox <laughs> in my, in my breedings and, and my dogs, uh, I think I only have one hound here and my one pure hound. And he's kind of, he's kind of a cross up a bunch of old school errors, bloodlines from, from, you know, last 50 years. Um, nothing of mine, just stuff that goes back to some of the Goswick and Derringers and some of the real, you know, great line hunters cross these dogs up over the years. And the truth is they're all crossed up with blue ticks and red ticks and red bones walkers. And, you know, they're a little mixed of everything. Um, Every other dog I have here at my place is actually quite cross. I've got about half of my dogs are 50% German shorthair point and 50% ham. And like you said, you know, some have a little longer legs, so, you know, a little different, a little different nose, a little different body. Uh, I like the German shorthairs because they got a lot of brains and, and they got a lot of heart and drive. You know, the dang thing, you can't wear them out hardly, you know. Um, two, two of my top dogs, half German shorthair, half point, or half German shorthair and half hound. And, Man, it's hard to wear them two out. They're brother and sister, and I tell you what, <clears throat> you know, I hunt them hard, and and uh, I mean, it's what we do for a living. We do it for for life. This is what we do, and and they hunt a lot. I, I've definitely seen a difference. Certain dogs, you know, that can hold up to the conditions, of, you know, five, six, seven days straight in, in the rough desert country, you know, in the rock, and be able to be able to make it every day, and and still want to go hunt, you know. Yeah. Um, I've seen some deer. I've seen some purebred dogs. That, you know, they were wore out after day two, you know, so absolutely, yeah, it just, uh, it, you just never know. A lot of it just goes back, it goes back to the breeding. I mean, you know, you got to have good blood, whether it's cross with bird dog like I got or purebred, you still got to have good bloodlines, you know, of dogs that, that have the heart to hunt and the toughness, all that stuff comes into play for sure. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty impressive to see, you know, all the different breedings and bloodlines. This stuff goes back hundreds of years, you know, and, sure. and, uh, that's that's one thing I love about lion hunting. You know, it, it, when you look at it, it's the most dry ground lion hunting on horseback or muleback, about as traditional as it gets. I mean, you can't you can't get anything more, <laughs> you know, old yep. fashioned and traditional. You know, uh, that's that's one of the things that fascinates me about it, and I think intrigues me and keeps keeps me going for sure. 
It's pretty raw, and anyone from Arizona can, and most people from anywhere in America can appreciate the West (laughs) and what it embodies and the toughness and the grit that it took to, you know, expand West and explore and all the visions and different things that come up from Hollywood interpretations versus family members that have come out here and homesteaded. But being on a horseback and watching your dogs work and exploring the desert or exploring the high country during dry ground, there's, you know, little moisture, which Arizona experiences quite a bit. Um, Some people have more success up north or in other states to the north when, you know, you can take your time and, and look for the tracks and put the dogs on it. And, and that's hard, just as hard, but there's something to say about walking and seeing a dry ground print. And I'd like you to elaborate on for people that may not understand what that is and seeing that print or having the dogs get on that scent um, when there's, you know, rocks and dirt that's tore up and kind of what you're looking for and what the scratch represents when you guys come across one of those. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. You're exactly right. The, Man, just the just the element of being out there in, like you say, the, the American West, man, on on horseback or you know, I mean, the stuff you see, I mean, from Indian caves, the Indian paintings, arrowheads, uh, the American West is is, uh, is here, you know. And, and when you're lion hunting on horseback, you feel it. I mean, you feel like you're in a lost world from 200 years. Ago. Uh, I really wish I could go back uh, even 50 years, you know, and get to experience some of the stuff those guys did. But uh, I'm I'm blessed to be able to follow in some of the footsteps, but yeah, it's, it's uh, the thing about the dry ground stuff different than the, you know, driving around, cutting the track in the snow. It, you know, you go through so many different terrains and types of soil and the rocks and the pine needles and the desert. And I mean, everything's different. You know, I, I, I'll have times, I mean, I'll go hunting certain countries. I might not see a track, even though we're catching lions. We might never see a track all day because it's so rocky, you know, or, or you're just in pine needles, different, different terrains. And then I'll go down the desert country, you know, where there's a lot of sandy bottom washes and stuff like that. And yeah, you're, you're looking for, you know, some, some days you're riding around on the back of the mule. You just hope to pick out the one track, you know, that that lion left that, that's in a visible spot that you, you can find it. Uh, and of course, then you add the eight or 10 hound dogs, <laughs> eight or 10 dogs running through that area first. Right. Uh, you got to, you got, you got to really have a keen eye. You got to learn what you're looking for. Uh, you know, a, a lion track is, is pretty distinct <clears throat> when you but there's there's a lot of times where you don't get you don't get a full track. You know, you just see a puddle. Sometimes you just see the toes. Sometimes you just see the rear of the heel pad, stuff like that. And there's there's obvious distinguished features of a of a cat that uh, a lot of people a lot of people don't know. Uh, but there's the lion lion track. Uh, a lot of people's misconception is, of course, if it has if it shows claw marks, it's not a lion tracker. If it doesn't show claw marks, it is a lion track. Well, <laughs> that's great. You know, lions do have retractable claws and. They don't put them up uh, very often when they're lounging around, walking around on the earth, checking out their next kill or going to their going to their next spot to lay up for the day. Um, it, it all depends on the soil. If they step in mud, they're walking uphill, or they decide to take off on a little truck. They might show claw marks. I've seen a lot of uh, with with claw marks, so that's that's not at all really a feature that I even use to distinguish a lion track. Uh, the, the heel pad is probably obvious. Uh, you know, lion pad. A lot of people call them a W shape or, or dimples in the back of the heel pad. I call them lobes. They have three lobes at the rear of the heel pad. It's uh, it's pretty obvious when you and when you're when you're hunting this dry ground. Uh, it's amazing what the sunlight and the shape the, the the shadows will do for. 
uh, versus a shaded tra- track that's under a tree or in the. Sh- Sometimes you got to get off your horse and, and or mule and really look at it and figure out what it is. But um, they've got a they've got a real distinct heel pad that's a distinguished feature. If I only saw the back track, you know, if I just saw the rear of the heel, I could tell you if it was a cat or a or a dog. And and then of course, you know, the toes are kind of odd, shape, uh, more rounded and and asymmetrical versus a dog track that, that has real symmetrical toes. Those are those are the easiest, most distinguished features. Lions usually. Most of the time, they show a lead toe. Uh, dog tracks are real symmetrical, so they don't show that lead toe very often. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, it, it's a it's a different world though. Looking for them in the dirt, you know, in the in the rock, dry ground, than than in the snow. For sure. yeah, I'm just imagining you're on top of a horse, so you're eight, ten feet up already, so you're already much higher than our normal vision, and then you're right. panning, looking out ten, fifteen, twenty feet. I mean, that's just I can't even comprehend seeing a partial track in limited you know, sand or rocks or and brush or whatever, just to be able to distinguish that. That's that's just incredible yeah. to me. I mean, absolutely incredible. It, it really is. a. Uh, uh, it's an art for sure. Uh, my, I, I actually was having this conversation with my girlfriend not very long ago because she's, she's been learning. I, I'm quite certain she's better at finding tracks now than about 90% of the sportsmen that I know. Um, she's gotten pretty dang good at it, but it definitely, once you learn what you're looking for, you can definitely pick them out a lot easier, but it, it is definitely an art doing it as you're riding by on them, you know, riding up the wash. And uh, I can't tell you how many of my clients, you know, I think think I'm from outer space sometimes because we'll be riding along, you know, up a wash and all of a sudden stop my mule and back them up or turn them around and go look at a track. You know, my clients have no clue how I even saw what I did. But like you said, you're just looking for one one thing catches your eye sometimes, you know. Um, it's just like a, a lion scratch is, is kind of the same way. Uh, most people don't even know what a lion scratch is. Uh, a lot of people call them a scrape, but I call them scratch. But, uh, it's pretty much just like a, a, a house cat in the litter box. You know, they go and mark their territory, and uh, you know they go to the bathroom under a tree. Uh, most of the time, the palms what they'll is they'll find a big lone pine tree or a big juniper tree or down in the desert. Sometimes you'll see it in the water. Uh, and what they're doing is they're just marking their territory, telling the other palms that this is this is their house and this is their property and to stay off. And they, they mark their territory so that the female knows that they're there and looking looking for them. And usually what they'll do is they'll sim- sniff around under a tree and uh, you know they'll they'll urinate or they'll 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 crap right behind it. And what they'll do is they'll just like a cat in a litter box covering up their feet, you know. And they usually do it with their back. And they just they, they kind of squat down. They push they push the soil away. And sometimes it's it's an inch deep. Sometimes it's three inches deep, you know. But they just they make a little scrape with their back, and uh, it's pretty distinguishable once you see a real good. But there's a lot of times you don't see a perfect one, you know. And uh, it's something that you really learn to look for, just like a track. You know, it's it's kind of a dead giveaway of a a lion's bend. And sometimes, you, I mean, you'll start a dog. Dogs will start a lot of tracks on a on a fresh scratch. But sometimes they'll bark on a scratch. You know, a day or two old. There's still a little scent there around the scratch because, of course, the lions spend a lot of time right. But then sometimes you'll go 100 yards away. There's no more no more scent there for the dog to work. You know. That's but. <clears throat> so that's something we've seen and experienced ourselves too. That um, the it's got to be and, and correct. Like I said, correct me if I'm wrong. Our experience has been because bears are so pungent and and stink so much that their scent travels and is you know very distinguishable when you know when you are hunting bears where lions they just don't smell near as bad and it's got to be really fresh which is why you got to be out there a lot more often 
correct? Oh, a- absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I don't hunt bears at all. I've, I've, always, uh, I've never hunted bears with my dogs. I've never let them run bears. I'll leave that to the bear guys. <laughs> I always, I always kind of joke with some of those bear guys. You know, you take a poodle and catch a catch a bear because they smell so bad. But uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know that that's really the case. But I always give them jokes about it. It definitely there's a big difference in 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 the lion. You know, the, the lion scent and the bear scent. Uh, yeah, lions just don't put near the amount of scent as, as a big. Uh, that's one thing about it on the dry ground stuff. You're generally speaking, if if you're if you're more you know, 12, to, 12 to twenty four hours behind a lion. You, you you probably aren't going to catch it. You know, I mean, there's plenty of lions you have caught or will catch or, you know, in that 12 to 24 hour gap. But most of the time, uh, you know, you're in the single digit hours behind them. You know, I mean, most of the time, an hour to three hours behind them. And sometimes an hour and half mile up the trail and sometimes three hours and five miles away. It just depends on what that line was, you know, right. how they, they were traveling through the country. Uh, one thing I've learned uh, watching the dogs and, and doing a lot of mapping like I did, when you when you start and watch the deep uh, the tracking units of where the dogs, uh, man, it's amazing. You, sometimes you think a lion, oh, he's gonna he he was here five hours ago. You know, somebody spotted a lion walk across the road or something or whatever, and you think he's gonna ten miles away, and then you go look, track that thing in a circle, and never look at the three hundred yard area. You know, they're just like we are. They just kind of wander around the woods. Sometimes they wander around the hill, go right back where they started. You know, and and they're just laying down on the rocks. You know. It's definitely a mystery every time you get behind one, whether or not that, that lion's traveling through the country and doesn't have intention of staying there. He, he or she is traveling around looking for a mate, hanging out looking for its next meal. There's a lot of variables in, in the scent and, and where that lion's going and how fast. So, but, yeah, one thing I have learned is, that, you know, if you're 24 hours behind or even 12 hours in a lot of cases, yeah. You, you probably aren't going to catch them, but uh, it's, it's hard. worth a try, you know, it, but it definitely is. And, and the reality is what most guys don't learn or real. It's not because the lion isn't there. Still, it's simply because it's not going to stay long enough for you to catch up. Correct. You know, one thing fail, fail to learn the dry ground stuff, especially, but even in the snow, uh, you know, hunting with dogs, everything you do is about the same. And there, there's a lot of variables in the scent world. You know, uh, you can, you can be right. I, I've, I've had lines that were an hour ahead of us and we didn't, but it wasn't because we weren't good enough. It was simply because the scent was gone, burned off in the sun and the wind burned the scent off before we could even make up that ground. You know, that, that's the difference. And, and a lot of guys don't realize and, and learn the, the, the game of scent, <laughs> but that's really what it all is right there is the scent game. 90%. And going back to your buddy that you first started lion hunting with and learning, and even though it was five years before you saw that, you know, I'm just thinking back on all the stuff that you're talking about, being able to see those lobes in the rear pad structure, being able to distinguish a coyote or another canine or, you know, any other type of canine, whether it be a wolf or someone's personal dog versus a, a lion and being able to read those tracks all those years of perfecting that and being able to distinguish those and then i'm sure him explaining how the scent burns off and then kind of segues into you getting them on your own that many years later but you've perfected that craft so well during that time that even though you may not have seen a lion you're looking for all the stuff and you're learning all those things um, because a lot of people don't ever get to see a mountain lion, even with dogs. A lot of people, sure. it's not a hundred percent. And that's where a lot of, 
a lot of people have that misconception, a lot of hunters and a lot of non-hunters especially that uh, think it's unfair to use dogs don't understand that it's not some 100% guarantee. These are extremely smart animals that are don't put out as much scent, that are very crafty and uh, know the woods better than anybody and just be, yes, dogs help us it's it, we're, we're not lying to anybody that it doesn't help us of course it does but it doesn't give you so much of an advantage that they they can't escape they are, they can easily get away um and you have to be out there constantly putting pressure in the woods and getting out there and putting out that effort otherwise you know if you put that little effort out and you don't go very often you're probably not going to see them Oh, that's absolutely correct. Uh, It is amazing to me how many uh, hunters in general, you know, sportsmen and sportswomen that that I see or talk to that talk about, oh, you're hunting with dogs, that's cheating, you know, or and the truth is I've invited virtually everyone (laughs) that I've ever talked to that that mentioned that dogs were cheating or the easier or whatever. I've invited them all. Uh, Anytime they want to come on, I'll I'll saddle a mule up and they can get on and ride along with them and and see it firsthand because the reality is the very first day, uh, catch or no catch, you know, even if we don't see a lion or, or even if we do catch that first day, which would be a, a, a miracle for the, for reality, they would, they would be real humbled real quick about the, the difference and, and how difficult it really is to, to hunt with dogs. Uh, man, it is it's a complete different world. And there, yes, there's advantage. Like you said, obviously you or I don't have the, the scent ability, the, 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 the nose that a dog, but, uh, the reality is, without without dogs in this world of hunting, we would <laughs> we would not be here. Uh, without dogs over the over the last hundred years, when lions were a bounty critter, and and every rancher, every person during the Great Depression that was hunting for just bounty money to make a living for their family, uh, without those dogs, man, nobody would be here. It, it, you know, we wouldn't hardly have any animals left to hunt. The cattle and and livestock was uh, really tough to survive without without the dogs doing it. It, it doesn't mean it's easy, you know. Just like you said, it just gives us a little bit of an advantage. Uh, it, it helps us in in every little bit we can get. But we're also talking about hunting the mountain lion, which you know, the North American puma is the most elusive, uh, arguably one of the most elusive animals in the world, and without a doubt, the most elusive and top predator, most apex predator in North America. And let me tell you how how, how these animals live is borderline methodical. I mean, everything they do is so methodical. Um, like you said, you know, following their track and even, even not catching them, but just learn where they travel and how often stuff like that, they come through a, a certain Canyon or a certain drainage. It is crazy. The more you learn is so fascinating. You know, you'll have a lion that, you know, comes through this can today and guess what? 20 years from now, another lion will methodically be walking down that exact same track and, and, and scratch under the same tree that that lion's great, great grandfather, <laughs> scratched under you know uh it's almost bred into them you know, it's just a, it's amazing to, to learn that and see that stuff and I, I don't think most people will ever be able to fact some of the stuff that i that i tell them or talk about they're uh, impressive they actually get to they're such an impressive incredible animal um and, and they a lot of people don't understand that hunters have an utmost respect for these cats and in any animal that we're targeting or harvesting we all have a lot of respect for that animal, and it's our diligence that we should, you know, pay a little respect to it and not disrespect that animal after a harvest. And most 
outdoorsmen and women do do feel that way and do uh, express that upon harvest and slash killing killing that animal. But being able to go out there and witness, you know, like you said, that apex predator that is so elusive that many people will never see in their lifetime, much less on a hunt. That it's no guarantee that you're going to see that. And anyone that has, um, you know, should feel honored and blessed to be able to, to see one of God's uh, beautiful, beautiful creatures. And I know talking with houndsmen, Mike and I have spoke with, uh, with specific predator hunters and talking with game and fish and hearing the statistics, even with dogs and you know, the, the few hunters that are able to harvest one when you're out on another hunt and you happen to just by dumb luck come across one, or if you got, you know, some people have been stalked by them and don't realize it, but all the totality of all of that, even that harvest success is, I want to say if I, I could be wrong and if our listeners, uh, or if you know, or Mike knows, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's right around at that like 40% rate and uh or less and we have a healthy healthy population across the state from all the way on the utah border to the mexico border that even with all the the houndsmen coming from in-state out-of-state regular hunters nothing is um trying to find the right word none of us are impacting them so much that we're depleting that population and they have a healthy population that continues to grow um, and it's almost our responsibility and to continue because because they're the apex, nothing is going to target them. And if anyone appreciates, you know, coos deer or mule deer or elk or any of the other prey species that they they, they target, um, knows that if there was too many lions, one, you know, some of them would be killed by them by each other for crossing over into territories, but there wouldn't be enough prey for them. They'd starve. And there wouldn't be any of these other animals for people to enjoy or or hunt um, if we didn't control the lion population. What what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, Matt, that's a fact. Is there is Arizona in general, and I and I, I follow other states quite heavily. I, I read about every study I can get my hands on for mountain lions. But yeah, Arizona is arguably one of the most robust and and steady lion populations in the country, and it has literally. 50 plus years. Uh, my data, uh, I, this is just going off the game numbers, but we have averaged uh, over about the last 30 years, and it could be a little off. I, I think it's been two or three years since I've sat down and done the numbers, but we've been averaging about 280 lions a year harvested in the state. And, you know, Game of Fish really has a just a number and a dartboard estimate that we have, you know, 2,500 to 3,500 lions throughout the state. I can tell you, my experience and, and all of my research and knowledge, that is significantly low of what we really have in this state. We probably have, uh, I, I think we have probably over 5,000 plus. Uh, from my experience in certain areas that I've hunted, I, I know two years ago I could tell uh, right here around central Arizona and Prescott where I live, at one point in time, in a three-month time, I had 15 no different lions, either that we harvested, uh, that I caught and released, or that I had on trail camp that were 100% known to be different, whether I had markings on them, one of them had one eye, so I could tell him really whatever. Uh, but I had 15 known different lines in like a like a 14, 13 and a half or 14 square mile area. 
and that's staggering up when you think about lions are supposed to be this elusive you know uh real independent and solitary creature that 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 you know anywhere from a 550 square mile home range and then here i was looking uh and i've actually seen that this year a very similar but yeah it's amazing when you see how many lions are living in certain areas and the the numbers are very high um i just recently actually just this last hunt we just finished up uh i've been camped out on one of the ranches here north of prescott and we actually just harvested three lions in a 10 day time and they were all three within a mile of each other and they were all three within a mile of the headquarters of the ranch wow you know it, it, it and and it, here's the here's the crazy is there's two other lines that i know about in there not the same ones that we killed. uh one of them was much bigger we actually trailed them the day that we caught two of them. but yeah i mean you know this poor rancher is out here you know trying to raise the the few the few cows that he's got left and there's lions right all over his place you know and one of these lions, I mean, people, oh, it was a female baby kitten. No, these, uh, the first female we killed, an ancient old, uh, we guessed her between 14, 13 and 14 years old, uh, really old female. She had uh, down to probably like, I think she was like 62, 62, 63 pounds on the scale, which 20 pounds less than she should have been. Uh, she was just an ancient old lion who's still surviving. I don't know how much longer she'd have made it. What an impressive cat she was to harvest and, and be. And uh, the other two that we caught right there by the ranch were, you know, one of them was a was a mature, mature tom, you know, probably a three four year old uh, tom, and then the other one was just another female, uh, adult, you know, adult female. But it was just crazy that they were all so close. But uh, uh, a lot of cattle right there, a lot of calves on the ground right now for the ranch, and so they were obviously just just making a life right there. And that's such easy prey it, for them. Oh yeah, it is. Uh, you know, this year's been a good year for us, bad year for the ranchers. Um, I'm glad we can help them out all we can, but uh, we've caught, we've caught uh, that I know of just since January 1st. I've, I've caught three lions that have killed uh, livestock, killed cows, and cows, and, uh, and we've got another one that we're currently hoping to catch up to again soon. He killed a yearling uh, that we have not caught yet. We've hunted him a couple times and just haven't been able to catch him, but he, he definitely killed a, a yearling uh, last week, and we're hope, hoping to get back in there and catch him, you know, and, and get him out of it. Man, these, these poor ranch, it's, it's a struggle, you know, every day. These ranchers that are living in some of these areas, just like you said, the deer and elk herd, bighorn sheep, and um, man, they they live an amazing life out there. But every day they wake up, they got to worry about a coyote or a lion, bobcat coming in and, and, and killing them. And these lions, they are the most impressive animal I've ever ever had the pleasure of hunting and, and learning about. And that's one keeps me going. Is I'm so fascinated by them as a as a species as an animal, as to what they do. Um, I actually, I think I sent Mike the pictures of it. We one of these tom lines we recently caught had a one of his eyeball was he was completely blind in one eye and bulging out you know whether that was a, a tumor that was pushing the eyeball out from behind or whether that uh stick or a claw that got in there and, and damaged it i don't we don't know uh the thing that's impressive is that that, that lion still killing calves with one eye you know <laughs> and very healthy he actually had a belly belly full of cow and, and calf and and hair so it was impressive to see that lion and, and how how hard these animals work for a meal every time and man they are impressive I, i've seen a lot of things from from uh, you know i've seen lions that, that i've caught off of fresh and and cow uh one one lion in particular a few years ago had, had a perfect hoof print <laughs> when when I, when I skinned her out perfect hoof print right in her midsection uh you could have traced it on there with some crayola crayons wow Incredible. uh just the shape of shape of, of an elk hoof. and uh and she wasn't gonna live i mean it was her last meal she killed the elk. 
but uh she when we caught her i looked up in the tree and she had she had about a two inch hole in in her midsection and her intestines were coming out of that hole and it made me appreciate that poor lion man she was she was just doing it for survival but guess you know she 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 won the battle with that elk and killed it but she was going to lose the war it was going to ultimately kill her just 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 to make that kill and it was a full-grown elk it was four or five hundred pound cow and she took it down she was a 78 pound lion but it's impressive to think of how how strong they are and how powerful but they, they risk their life every time they go to kill a big animal Yep, that is true. That is for sure. And I know my only lion I killed years ago, it's been about 15 years ago, and there was a a houndsman out of central Arizona, and it was the same thing. He he had a bunch of relationships with ranchers, and he just said, hey, once we uh, get a call from the rancher, you know, that will be your go time. And that's how I harvested my my one and only lion was basically that rancher um, had a bunch of lions in there, and it was in the springtime. It was in April time, and, and I just remember harvesting that that lion then within a half hour um you know guy's name was coop you know he called the rancher and next you know the rancher's meeting us down there by the trucks and man he's just high five and excited and so appreciative and then he's just telling about all the stories of you know the survival you know he's trying to raise cattle they're on public land plus he's got state trust land plus he's got his own private land and you know he says hey this is all the cows are going back down to the slaughterhouse that's basically going to be feeding and all the restaurants around us. And I think that's one of the things that it kind of opened my eyes is sometimes we drive wherever we drive, we see all these cattle out there, you know, on the roads and the freeways or at these water holes. And we forget that when we walk into Fry's or Safeway or Albertsons or wherever it is, we're getting that hamburger and that steak. I mean, that's all the cattle that we're seeing out there in the fields. And, you know, and that's the cause and effect what these ranches are trying to survive. And he was saying that one, you know, just that one calf that, that he lost, I mean, that cost him hundreds and hundreds of dollars, you know, the domino effects. And then he was showing, hey, if, if I lose that cow, then the person that's going to pick up that cow, they they make less money than the butcher makes less money than that grocery store. It was really interesting to hear about the dynamic of how that lion killed that cow and, and it actually took away financial incentives and, and lost, you know, the financial side. You know, it's kind of interesting, that domino effect of when a lion kills a calf of how it affects, you know, all the way down the line. Oh, you're exactly right. It, I I was just having this conversation uh, not too long ago with the rancher that I, that I was camped out. He's become a, a kind of an idol of mine. He's become a great friend. He was a uh, fourth generation lion hunter, and he's retired from lion hunting now. But he still runs the ranch, but uh, at one point in time, you know, he was dang sure one of the better lion hunters around as well. He he was telling me his, his grandfather right here on the same ranch was uh, pretty much the only way he was able to any cattle on this place is because. He was hunting lions for the bounty, you know, and he said if it wasn't for, you know, being able to get the bounty on those lions and, and kill that many lions, that he wouldn't have been able to keep cows on there because there were just too many lions. Uh, fascinates me about that. I'm, I'm thinking here we are in 2022, and I just caught three lions off the same place within a mile of the, of the, of the camp, you know, within a mile of, of it. And he's telling me about, you know, lions that his great-grandfather and his grandfather hunted and killed here with 50, 60, 70 years ago. And, and here we are still the same ranch with the same robust lion population that was literally almost 100 years ago. You know, and it, when, when, when you really think about it, it's mind-boggling, you know, to think about. And it, and it also tells you how powerful and strong as a species these predators are, these top predators. I mean, these lions, you know, they, they repopulate uh, almost as quickly as we can kill them. And, you know, they can have up to, you know, up to in a litter, you know, pretty common for them to have two or three. Um, I've seen several with four. But uh, it's amazing to think of a female lion raising two or three or four kittens to adulthood and fighting off other lions. 
being able to kill enough cattle and enough wild game, deer and elk, uh, to feed all those mouths, to feed all those kids. Uh, but to, but to think that they've been doing it for generations, you know, just like we're hunting for generations, but they, they're surviving just as well. And, and they are such an impressive critic to your, uh, it's nowadays, I mean, these ranch get thousand dollars, thousand, you know, plus out of their pocket if, if a calf gets, you know, and, uh, like you said, that's our meat. That's our, that's our, our way of survival and food source from the spot. And so, you know, for us to be out there hunting for these ranchers and, and doing them a thing is, uh, is a pretty big thing. Uh, like I said, uh, three out of the last, well, we've killed four lions this, just since January 1st that have, that have depredation lions more or less. I mean, we may not have depredated them. We may put a tag on them and, and done it that way. They, they had killed livestock. And I, I, I mean, just that alone is what I'm seeing in my small circle of life but how many lions are killing cows and calves throughout the state of arizona it, it's a it's a pretty staggering statistic probably you know and what we're doing for the rancher like you said the trickle down effect i mean that rancher's growing hay to feed his cows and his horse and and one man it cost him a lot of money you know and they're out there trying trying to pay the bills just like everybody else and the trucker and everybody else is coming to pick up those cows butcher like you said it's just it is a heavily trickle down effect you know and I, I've grown to appreciate these ranchers uh, as much as they've appreciated me. I think you know uh, it's a it's a neat thing to be able to build relationships with them for sure, and they appreciate you and what you're doing. And learn to appreciate what more what they do as well. You know, pretty neat thing. I just recently earlier this year, I think in January, we caught lying down on a on a ranch that I recently got to meet one of the ranchers that that just owns a little ranch up on the top end of the country that we we're hunting. Uh, old lady born and raised there. Gosh, I I think she's 75 now or something, but she's still pretty much just ranches it by herself she's got 75 head of cat and guess what <laughs> the lions have killed one already this year you know so, oh, um, you think about that, that that poor lady all she can do is afford to, to take care of 75 cows and cats if she loses one or two it's pretty pretty big hit to her you know so absolutely needless to say she's pretty happy that we're taking care of her and uh, i'm glad she's there to take care of us so <laughs> well it shows like what you were talking about on how game and fish is trying to be able to show and the study in in any state you know you can only collar so many they're only going to be able to track so many and then kind of extrapolate that data on okay there's so many in this small area and that there's this many square miles and then you know push that out across the state and then come up with a guesstimate because that's ultimately what it is on any of yeah. the, on any of the counts on any of these animals there's no way and everybody knows that there's no way of knowing exactly the the determination. I think on some of the you know close to endangered species, they may have a, a closer head count because there's so few of them, and in a smaller area. But on lions, um, you know, you're not you know they're not all collared, <laughs> as you see. So having a, a, a low end estimate of 3,500 versus a higher end of 5,000. And a lot of people, including myself, you know, always came to that, that thought process that they have, you know, distinct territories. That's why that Tom is going and setting that scrape, just like any other big cat across the world, that they have those territories. They're marking those territories and letting everybody else know this is, this is my house. If you come in, you know, be ready for the fight kind of thing. But yep. to, for you to be able to get three different lions and whether those were you know, adults from that old female, uh, who knows, but when the female kicks them to the curb, they don't let the, you know, two-year-old or three-year-old cub come back and start hunting 
again because she knows she's going to have to take care of those cubs on a future um, pregnancy. So it's weird and it's interesting um, and eye-opening that three, because they're able to have so much prey, you got the wild game and you have a, a continuing food source in the cattle right there that you have so many. So you got two that you haven't caught and three that you guys did catch. So that's five in a real close-knit area that they're not harming each other or maybe the one with the with the jacked-up eyeball did get hurt. But you know what I mean? You got five cats, five top predators in a, in a really tight-knit area that are still healthy and are still um, successful and not even, you know – fighting amongst each other for lack of a better term yeah and not having these huge expansive uh roaming territories that they're able to stay there because of the prey and and all that impact on the cattle and all those ranchers that it you know negatively affects their bottom end it negatively affects their livelihood and and ours as well and that symbiotic relationship of you guys being able to help them out and them letting you know, hey, we got one here, we got a fresh calf, um, and we know lions like the fresh kills, not like a bear where they they like them all rancid and nasty. A, a cat, you know, buries it if it, when they uh, they've had their fill and they come back and eat on it. But once it gets real, real disgusting and nasty and rancid, um, you know, if maggots are getting on it, cats aren't going to eat that. And yeah, so they're going to no, have to kill again true. and again because they don't like that that stuff that a bear is or a coyote's willing to eat. Yeah, the cats are. Uh, it's that's one thing that's fascinating to me is, is learning how finicky they really are in in terms of their. Uh, I, you know, gosh, fifteen plus years, I I trail cameraed every kill that I could find, and uh, what it taught us an immense amount of knowledge uh, on these lions and bears too. I'm not a bear guy, but I've I've had a couple bears come in and, and take lions. And one thing I've, I've noticed and learned with lions is that contrary to popular belief, you know, I hear all these deer hunts and sportsmen, oh, lions kill 52 deer a year. I mean, they can, they can do that. They're, they're, they're a top predator. They have the power to do that. But the reality is they, they don't kill that many. They don't kill that many. They kill a lot of deer, but not that many. Uh, a lion on average, at least in all studies and, and stuff over the last 15 plus years of, of trail cameras on uh, your average lion, will spend about five to seven days on a kill. And uh, I've seen them stay as long as uh, 14 days on one kill. Uh, and I've seen 10 to ten to 12 several times. But uh, it all depends on the condition. A deer in the summertime, the lion, well, the summer heat and the bugs and the maggots and everything, that kill's only going to, you know, four or five days before the meat starts getting rancid and the lion decides it wants to eat something a little fresh off the grill. And then a bear, like you said, It'll go in there and eat that thing if it's rotten. I mean, stinky Italy at all, but uh, they're, they're, and that's why they stink. And those other, the, that's why the poodle can find that bear because that, it's it's rubbing its fur on that two week old uh, dead animal. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. You know, one of the one of my favorite uh, encounters, or or I should say, documentations of a. Uh, I had a tom lion that a friend of mine killed, or we didn't kill, but I had a friend of mine call. He said, "Hey, I just found a fresh elk kill." He sent me pictures. I mean, the lion hadn't even touched it. It kissed uh, Spike and uh, put two or three sticks on it <laughs> and then walked away. The, the lion just killed it, left, and it was going to go back that night and eat it. Or what. We we put a camera on it that very uh, morning, and the lion came back, cut a little hole out of the chest, and eat the heart and liver. Pretty common what they do. They'll cut in there and eat the heart and liver first because that's the most protein and, 
and the most uh, you know rich part of the meat that they. And that lion, it was a, it was a pretty big palm lion. I got up on trail camera, and he came back uh, the second and ate just a little bit. And I'm talking maybe a pound and a half to two pounds of meat off of that elk. And that lion never went, back, never ever went back to that kill. And I left trail camera there for two weeks. Well, somewhere around day five or six, and this was in the summertime, so that kill started to spoil and get a little stinky. I think it was somewhere around like day five or night of the fifth uh, of, of I don't know, bears, 250, 300-pound bear walking. And that bear sat down and ate that elk for two nights straight. And I'm not exaggerating when I say there was not an of meat or bone left after 48 hours. That bear had ate that whole elk in two nights just devoured it. Wow. I'd never seen anything like it. I had no idea that bears were, were as, as dominant as they were about just consuming a kill. But he ate every every part of it. It was pretty fascinating for sure. But uh, it also goes to show. You know, a lot of times lions will kill some, uh, get their fill, and mosey on. You know, uh, I've, I've noticed that with big toms, especially. Uh, just recently had another, like, a yearling calf on one of the ranches. Uh, Tom came in and killed the calf. Uh, looks like he ate on it for a couple of days. And we've been we've been hunting, but we have not caught that tom. And from all my uh, trailing and, and riding around down there on the mules north, that tom left the country. You know, he just killed that calf just while he was hanging out. But he's got no intention of going back to it. At least. You know, while he's on that kill, he's gonna go make another kill. So, yep. And those it's, big toms have really, really big, wide-ranging territories, correct? They, they absolutely can. Uh, you know, it, again, it, it's all very uh, dependent on the food supply and everything else. Most of what I've, known, at least in the country that I hunt for the most, I've seen toms have, you know, 15 to 20 square mile home range. Uh, some of them, have five to six mile square home range, it just depends on where they live. Um, there was a there was a lion, tom lion in Nevada. Uh, I think it was northern or central, kind of central northern Nevada a few few years back. That I, I was reading up on a tom, and that tom lion had covered 120 miles of country. And uh, from from where he raised as a sub-adult when they first called him to the time that he started venturing out on his own, he, he had gone 120 miles south and, uh, and then had moved back to the north a little bit. And he ended up making a home. Uh, somewhere around like the 60 mile mark from where from where he was born, and uh, he found some wild horses <laughs> and decided uh, that was enough food to keep supplied for a while. He he ended up making a camp right there for a couple of years on that wild horse herd, and he killed several wild horses. And but yeah, I mean, talk about an expanding range. That's from Prescott to Phoenix. You know, it's an hour hour and a half drive. You know, exactly. So more. impressive. So very impressive. It just blows my man. Oh man, my last question is. For you, and it kind of goes back to when uh, I was hunting with Coop, and before he moved to the Midwest, and uh, was a great friend of mine that kind of became friends with. And I remember that Game and Fish would hire him every year, and he he only kind of just did sub guiding, and you know he just it was the love of the dogs and being out there. But Game and Fish was actually hiring him to do surveys for him, um, as he was an expert of that area in Central Arizona. And he was actually out there trailing lions and catching them and kind of doing all the documentation, reporting that back to Game and Fish. And one of my questions is just thinking about how much time you spend out there. I mean, you really, you're the expert that's out there in the field that understands it and kind of knows what's going on. Have you had any experience with, you know, kind of parallel with, with Game and Fish and doing surveys and trying to help get real accurate numbers and really what's going out there on your side of it? I haven't personally. Um, I, I do. I've talked to and I and I know a few guys that, that have worked for them over the years and, and done you know private contract work. And I know I spoke with uh, a, a, a gentleman that, that does work for them now and, and puts you know collars a lot. 
Uh, I spoke with him a couple times, just, you know, gained a little bit of, uh, of his thoughts and stuff. But um, I personally haven't done any collar, you know, collaring or, or, or things like that for him. But it is, it, you know, it's always on the table. It's something I'm always fascinated with. Any Anytime, I, you know, put my hands on or, or, or put my eyes on another mountain lion in my life, I'm very willing to do stuff just because, I, like I said, they're the most important creature out there to me. So I want to learn everything I can about them. If, if there's any data or any research I could do or, or any, any opportunity that comes up, I would I'd, I'd, uh, entertain it because, like I said, I just love learning about them and love seeing them. Absolutely, um, for sure. And that was kind I, of what... I've learned a lot from the guys that have done that with game fish. They, you know, they've told quite a, quite a bit of things that they've done with, with the collar studies, and I've learned a lot. I've seen, uh, I've seen some of the maps uh, over the years of different lines that have been collared throughout the country, and you kind of get to look at all the dots on the map where the lions travel kind of get to learn a little bit about one individual lion and it's it's, it's a neat thing it helps, helps you learn a little bit more about the species in general yep that's exactly what he was saying he was he was really shocked when he spent that time of just focusing of how many lions are actually in the country and how they overlap and how they travel and you know it was, yeah. it was definitely was eye-opening i just remember him telling lots of stories on it and how it was a completely different perspective of learn it was more of a, a science space and it really kind of opened his eyes of how elusive the lions are, and when it comes to tracking, trying to come up with some kind of generic number that basically determines how many lions we really have, because it's all a best guess for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's and that's the truth. Like you said, it really is. It's all throwing a dart at the dartboard and landing on a number. You know, I, I my my personal wish and hope is that Game and Fish uh, would do everything that they could to get all the knowledge from people that that do it more than they do. Even and I've spoke with several Game and Fish people over the years and. Uh, Recently, especially, I've I've had a couple conversations with uh, uh, you know game fish personnel that I feel like understanding that uh, we have the knowledge, just guys like myself and and many others throughout the state that that do hunt these things full time and and do make it our path um, with the dogs and and stuff that we have probably I'm, one of us probably has and I'm not I'm not bragging personally, but I know that that have even hunted lions longer than I have, but I feel one dry ground lion hunter that's done it. For any length of time that does it full time, like I do, has probably more knowledge. About ninety-eight percent of the game fish personnel I'll put together about this species, uh, and it's, it's nothing against them. It's just they they're not out chasing that one species and learning what they can. They're they're reading stuff out of a book or out of a you know whatever we have. Uh, so okay, for all I, you game and hope- fish employees that are that are listening right now, uh, this is. This is the opportunity of a lifetime to get Central Arizona data. If you don't already have it, you'd contact Brian Fisher in order to get all that because there's no better data, there's no better real-time information than someone's out in the field. And any scientist can appreciate you got to have that real-time data, right? Yeah, that's a fact. <laughs> that is a fact for sure. you got to call uh, I've Brian. Had, I've had some good conversations with a couple of them. Uh, but, yeah, and, and like I said, I've spoke about this in, in great length with some of my fellow lion hunters that are, that are I feel far more knowledgeable than I am about certain aspects of it and and uh, yeah that's it, it's just how we see it you know like I said it, it's it's like anything I mean if you do it a lot you're going to learn it a lot man the amount of stuff we could help them with would be would be uh, pretty drastic I think and I I can only wish that they would uh, just like they would do with the deer and elk you know or or any other species you know you got to learn it from the guys that are out there all the time and and uh, the stuff that we see while we're out there, um, like I said, I've got I've got so many trail camera videos and pictures, and I've got so many videos that I've taken of lions and uh, kills, and I could show you know days and days worth of footage of stuff that probably most of the 
personnel with Game of Fish or uh, some other uh, fish and wildlife organizations probably had never seen, you know, something that they wouldn't even uh, think would ever happen. You know, I mean, just much like these three lines out here in such a close proximity, I've, I've had deals where, I, you know, three and four lines off of one kill. Uh, there, was, there was a time up in Unit 9 many years ago on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. I have five different lines documented off one kill, uh, a female and two sub and an orphan kitten and a, and a big giant mature tom. And I have video of all of it. And one cow elk. Wow. And man, what a, <laughs> again, staggering numbers when you start looking at the population in that area. I mean, for a female with two sub adult yearlings to be eaten on a kill and then uh, be sharing it with a, with what I believe to be an orphan kitten that was much smaller uh, and then have a giant tom line come in and take that kill. I mean, that's, that's a lot of lines in that one area. And again, something the game of fish probably doesn't see very often if uh, the, the, the real time knowledge of, of what's actually incurring and happening out is pretty impressive. So I do hope uh, a lot of these fish and wildlife agencies will start to uh, let the actual <laughs> the, the hunters that are out there a lot and that we can verify the data from uh, via trail cameras and, and videos and pictures that we can prove and show. I mean, man, we could sure help out a lot if they'd, uh, if, if they'd let us. Well, that'd be a great partnership because, as we know, the Humane Society of the United States, HSUS, is always attacking states and wants to outlaw all types of predator hunting. And their ultimate goal would be to outlaw hunting altogether. And they are going at it from a, a crazy political view and not from science-based and not from a management aspect at all. And they always go after predators first. Like they have in Colorado, or excuse me, in California and other states, and uh, you know, to the ill-informed or the uninformed, they target with pamphlets and literature, and, and they give out, you know, unfortunately, like a lot of the media that we see nowadays, the, the misinformation uh, would be putting it lightly. You're you're giving the wrong information, and in you're skewing the statistics in order to uh, further your agenda. And say that, you know, last time when this came around several years ago, everybody knows that we don't, one, we don't have links in Arizona. And if they are, maybe there's some coming from Utah, like we've seen other species, but that's few and far between if there ever, ever has been. Well, yeah, we have a couple jaguars and ocelots that have been captured on uh, people's trail cameras in the past. And Border Patrol has got them on their trail cameras uh, down on the southern coming across from Mexico. But they encompass all those and put all bobcat, mountain lion, ocelot, lynx, and jaguar all together and want to outlaw all predator hunting or all big cat hunting. And there's only two of those that we already hunt. The other three, we don't. And the uh, ocelot and jaguar are federally protected anyway. And exactly. so many people, because there's so fewer hunters then there are non-hunters that when you see that on a TV ad and you're, they're showing, you know, a spotted kitten or they're showing, um, you know, sorrowful eyes like an old cartoon of, of a cat, you know, herd or this or that, whatever they want to do, they're, they're skewing the statistics and they're misinforming and lying to people that we're all targeting these and that if we continue to hunt big cats – then we're going to deplete the whole population, which we've already discussed kind of in link that there's no way that's going to happen. And partnering with Game and Fish or U.S. Fish and Wildlife and having those statistics, having that real-time data, 
that the scientists need, that the state conservation agencies and the state or government that relies on that information in order to make policies or in order to inform the public better that these outside special interest groups don't need to come here and take over our, our God-given hunting rights. And they need to give that correct data that push that out so that when it comes to voting or if they introduce these propositions like they do to try to get across the state legislature on, on federal aspect that no, no matter what, this is the population, this is the healthy population. And with all the houndsmen here, kind of what we discussed early on with all the, the dogs, with all the hounds and with just people coming across them during a normal hunt or another hunt species and you see one and the, the, the season's open for them, you're still only harvesting this much. And with the fact that they can have kittens in the, you know, a normal averages that two to three, they can have more. Um, but then two or three of those are healthy if they have five or six, because most of the time those aren't all going to live. And that exactly. mom can take care of them and provide for them. But there is a healthy population. And I guess a long story of long-winded version of it's beneficial for Game and Fish. It's beneficial for any of the conservation groups to partner with governmental agencies to show that real-time data so that we're not doing the infighting and, uh, you know, it's us against them or scientists versus hunters. If we want to continue and we want to be able to continue hunting bobcats and coyotes and uh, other states with their wolves and other bear populations and especially lions here, we got to have that uh, shared relationship and start. They need to start asking people like yourself for that data. We already have, you know, mandatory check-ins, and I know the state's going towards that for other species or, or at least discussing it in, in depth. The bears and the lions, we do already check in, and they get a lot of information. There's, you know, the unit that they're coming from, and they know that there's still a super healthy population out there. But we have to edge it's our part, too, to, to educate the public when we see it or when we're confronted with those debates that, you know, what we're doing is not unfair, what we're doing is not depleting the population, and, and have reasons to back it up and not just, you know, take a chapter out of their book and scream and yell, you know what I mean? So yeah. we got to have those well, good relationships to be able to and have the, you know, the information to back it up. Absolutely. And, and to your point, uh, one thing that comes to my mind, it, it's uh, something I've been following for years. You know, the state of California banned lion hunting in, in 1993 or 94. I can't remember. It was right there. Uh, at that time, they were averaging, I think, about 285 lions a year getting harvested. Uh, sportsmen were paying for that. Obviously, that was a ton of revenue for the yep. for lion tags, butcher shops, taxidermists, uh, tanneries, you name it. There was a lot of money going into the economy at that time for those 285 lines a year. Uh, at that time, that was pretty average. And since then, and I, you know, again, I haven't kept up on the numbers because I read this, you know, I paid attention and studied this 10 or 15 years. Uh, I'm not exactly sure of the date, but I know since then they've killed over 300 lines a year, but they were paying a government hunt to go in and kill nuisance lines, more or less. Exactly. killers. And all. So they're actually killing more lines, but they're paying somebody to do it. So it's taking money out of the taxpayer uh, pocket. Arizona, uh, and you were you were talking about it. Arizona uh, dealing with the the current stuff and these pushes from the antis and and the HSUS and the Center for Biological Diversity and the Mount Lion Foundation. You know what these people, 
don't realize or don't want people to realize is, and it's something that I pay attention to, again, in the state of Arizona in the last 30 years, about 280 lions is what we've averaged, somewhere around. What what strikes me when I read that statistic and when I watch uh, the numbers every year, and I could probably go back even farther, but it's a little harder. We, we weren't checking them in then. They were they were a bounty at one point in time, so probably more lions were even getting killed because they were on the government was actually paying guys to kill them. But just in the last 30 years, if you look at the numbers, we've been able to manage uh, by science-based management and game of fit, managing lion seas and, and checking them in and all that. We still are averaging 285 lions a year, and every year we see kill about the same number, which tells you the population obviously isn't depleted every year because if it was 10 or 15 years ago after 285 lions a year, we would run out of lions to kill if we were killing that many that it was that it was damaging the population so bad. But the truth is we're barely being able to keep up with the population as it is. Exactly. And so it, it's, a, it's a statistic more people should pay attention to, and, uh, and I hope more hunters and sportsmen get involved uh, more and more with, with predators and, and paying attention to some of these statistics and getting the numbers and paying attention to stuff. But, yeah, I call them Sarah McLaughlin commercials. Yes. Uh, these, these, <laughs> you know, these puppy dogs with a sad eye. I could make a hundred commercials a year here at my house. Dog faces I see around here. People people would donate to me. I hope as much as they donate to those things. But man, I'd probably be living a different life because <laughs> we could use the extra money around here. But exactly. uh, man, but yeah, I mean, it, it really the like you said the the spotted kitten pick. Uh, people think we're out there killing spotted kittens. Well, it's just not true. We we haven't been you know we haven't been spotted kittens since back in the in in the bounty days of lion hunting truth is i don't know of a lion hunter out there that i'm aware of that i that i interact with that would even want to kill a spotted kitten or even a young kitten or right. a young lion you know? uh i mean i let a lot of kittens a lot of lions in general go every year that that are just young and whether they're spotted or not you know i've, I've caught young or small lions and told people no let's leave that one alone it's, it's just young let's let, let it live a little bit longer but you know these, these people don't realize all the all the good that we do for the <laughs> for the species itself and for the hunting world. Absolutely. Yeah. It kind, for sure. Yeah, the education standpoint of just bringing people up to speed and giving them that correct information plays a, a, a big role. Um, I know a lot of other podcasts have talked about it. I know a lot of other organizations here in Arizona really want to get that information out. HSUS and Center for Biological Diversity and all these other anti-hunting groups aren't going away and even when we win you know they always come back in full force or they're learning from how we you know beat them a few years ago from a grassroots effort but we have to educate them and we have to educate non-hunters and and then even if you're not into that just being an outdoorsman you have to educate the youth and you know allow them to appreciate what we're doing and allow them to, you know, make their own decisions, but inform them, give them in, a lot of information to make those informa informative decisions. And having kids myself and Mike having kids um, that are older and uh, you having one, I think, coming shortly on the way, right? You got to... I do. I, I do. I've, I never thought I'd be so excited. Uh, yeah, I sure do. I'm, I'm ecstatic to have 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 a baby uh, riding around in the saddle with us and <laughs> playing with the dogs and learning learning this stuff. There's nothing better. There's nothing better than uh, um, God's blessing of having a child. So 
Um, that was my little special segue of being able for you to brag about having a future baby with, uh, with your missus. And it's, it's, it's incredible. Uh, children bring a whole new perspective, a whole new, uh, teaching and all the information and values that you can instill in them. But it's, it's important, you know, all the kids as they grow up, I'm sure there's 95% of the kids in, in certain schools that have no idea hunting or anything like that. And then even if you instill those values in, in your own child and they got to tell someone else in school, that's how we're going to be able to inform more and more people is just getting the word out. And we're really happy for you that you got a little one coming on the way. It's uh it's a blessing and um, you'll be really excited about it. I can't wait. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you very much. We are, we are ecstatic around here. Uh, as I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you, watching, watching my, uh, my future baby mama lay, lay under her car and turn a wrench. <laughs> oh my I'm, gosh! I'm waiting for her to start cussing when she busts her knuckles, but it hadn't happened yet. That's but, hilarious. Uh, it, it is, uh, it's pretty priceless. She's, she's a, she's a spe- special lady for sure. I was actually able to do something that I dreamt about for a long time. Uh, not too long ago, we caught a couple of vines I was talking about out on the ranch, and she was, uh, she was actually close enough at, at the ranch at, at camp that she could hear the dogs barking and so she strapped on her hiking hiking shoes and uh her and her sister and uh they were able to walk up and and see the lion at the tree which was the first time for her to see a lion and so it was a it was a special moment for incredible uh, there's nothing like it and i i yeah i'm just ecstatic i can't wait to to show her some more lions and and for for our baby to uh, to get a chance to experience the stuff and we teach 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 our baby and and camp with it and spend time in the outdoors future and, uh, lion yeah. hunter i hope so i hope so it's uh <laughs> kind of a scary thought really but <laughs> it's, nope. it's it's a it's something you know it's a it's a lost art really this this lion hunting especially dry ground horseback stuff so i'm i'm, I'm looking forward to if, seeing if my, my if our kid decides to uh, following footsteps i'd be all right with it that's cool that's awesome <laughs> it'll have every chance it wants to, to do it that's yeah sure. it won't be for yeah. a lack of opportunity that's for sure no i was gonna say if it doesn't it, it, it's for sure gonna grow up with dogs and mules and yeah if it doesn't like it that's that's their choice but it thinks you're gonna have all the opportunities in the world so. that's awesome we are we are ecstatic and i yeah i appreciate that Brian, we're going to have you on again. There's so many more topics that we want to discuss. Um, we want to hear more success stories. I, we love talking to you. We love hearing about all the success uh, that you and your clients have and all the information that you're willing to share. How can people reach out to you um, if they want to go hunting or if they want to follow you on social media or if they have any questions? What would uh, what would they have to do? Or if you can leave us with any parting words, please. Yeah. Um, well, I haven't, <laughs> we've been so busy hunting and stuff. We haven't been on social media much, but my Instagram has usually been the most active and I'm, I'm getting ready to get back on there. I got a lot of pictures and videos. Uh, my Instagram handle is at Fisher and, uh, my, my Facebook is just Brian Fisher. Uh, it's actually linked to my Instagram. So I'm, I'm going to, you know, when I, when I share stuff to Instagram, it'll be going straight to Facebook as well. Um, otherwise they can email me at wildlife artistry at live.com um or they can call me my uh or text me for that matter my cell phone number is 92713-4110 and i welcome any and all phone calls uh, if anybody has any questions or or anything i can help them with in the hunting world always happy to uh, i had plenty of people help me along the way and i i just hope i can pass it along um 
we we do uh we are full it's all i do full time we pretty much hunt for a living uh we put we put on a a a great camp i i'm blessed to have this this lady in my life that that does all our cooking for us she cooks and uh, cooks up some awesome meals we we eat like kings when we're at camp and we're very well fed and we got the energy to go and uh every day and we put on a, a good camp with wall tents and wood stoves uh, good, good mules, good livestock, and and great dogs, and we welcome anybody that wants to to come join us anytime. Uh, even if somebody ever wants to just come join us and see how we work or see what the operation is all about, we, we we're always welcome for people to come into camp and visit with us. So um, feel free to call me or text me or get a hold of us on social media, and uh, we'll start posting again soon. We got a lot to catch up on. So we've been uh, we've been kind of off the grid quite a bit so we've hey, got a lot of stuff to catch up you on, got so. you got no pictures and you got no uh anything to post if you're not out there doing what you're doing so yeah you, you that's, can't that's, that's, you can't that's get on instagram right if you're not out there <laughs> yep yep no we got a we got a, a, a quite a book put together right now to, to get back to sharing so we'll be back to sharing soon and uh uh i would love any any time to, to come back and and be on the podcast with you guys uh uh, anytime we're, we're available. So, um, I look forward to it and can't wait for the next time we got. Endless I can't wait. <laughs> Cannot we can wait. Yep. I very much look forward to it. And I appreciate you guys doing the good, good work that you do. And, uh, I love, you know, we follow Christian hunters of America and, and, uh, we'll, we'll keep up on that. Very good organization. Glad, glad to be a small part of it. Well, just before Mike closes us out with uh, a prayer, I was going to say, that post that I put on our Instagram of your of your uh, that Tom with the with the busted eye, and I just posted the question of you know what do you think happened? We got so much feedback from that <laughs> one. It's a clear picture, so it captured a lot of people's uh, attention. But just yeah. everybody's different ideas. It it could have been a branch. It could have been a, another line. It could have been born like that. It could have been something you know. Like you said, a tumor. Of, it could be any number of things, but it just invokes so many uh, imaginations and questions, and and just it's a super cool picture. Um, it bet. got so much response, and it was really really impressive on on how how many people were in over ten thousand people saw that wow. picture on our page. Michael. So it was super well, super cool. I I uh, I'll be posting plenty more, and you guys are more than welcome. You have my permission to share any of my stuff anytime. And I, I hope people uh, stay interested and stay involved and uh, keep doing the keep fighting the good fight. Amen to that. Well, Mikey. All right. Well, uh, end us in prayer. And one thing I also want to bring up is knowing um, individuals like Brian when they're out in the field hunting, as we heard, you know, 14 out of 16, 17 days. Just uh, be patient because sometimes it may take them two, three weeks to get back to you. I mean, a lot of the places he's going, there's no cell. So, you know, you basically, you're just like going, you're being dropped in the middle of nowhere and there is no service. And sometimes when they get back, they just want to rest up and kind of take a deep breath. So just know that, I mean, I'm sure you can test this too, Brian, of sometimes, you know, you have every intention to get back, but just sometimes you just got to have patience because when you're out there hunting, I mean, it's weeks and weeks at a time. So just, it's not the instantaneous world that we all live in. We used to having a cell phone, we can just shoot a text. So. With that, yeah, we definitely, we definitely go hard. Smoke signals work really good sometimes for us. <laughs> if you get a hold of us. Oh, that's good stuff. Good stuff. All right, Lord, I'll end this in prayer. Lord God, we just, uh, we love you, Lord, and we just thank you for your incredible creation of the mountain lion, Lord, and and to inspire individuals such as Brian to 
to have such passion for it, Lord. We know, Lord, that you give the gift of life, and man, what an awesome blessing to give the gift of life to Brian and uh, his girlfriend and and, uh, to to be able to raise a family and to to bless them. And I just ask that you would bless them as a couple, Lord, bless the pregnancy, Lord, and uh, bless their their future generational opportunity that's coming, Lord, to uh, be a, a mom and a dad. And I just ask that you'd just bless them. And Lord, I also ask that you'd bless our listeners, Lord, and we also ask, Lord, that you would uh, unite us as hunters and, uh, and outdoorsmen and, and conservationists, Lord, that, that we would make that stance as, as oneness, Lord, to, to allow hunting as you created it, Lord, and to allow us to use good judgment, Lord, and to, to do as you instilled us to do, Lord, to manage the wildlife that you instilled on us. And we just give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.